This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. Friday, April 29th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We're going to talk about gerrymandering today. And before I get into the gritty details, don't worry, it won't be too gritty. Fun fact, Massachusetts Governor Eldridge Jerry did not like gerrymandering, and not just because it mispronounced his name. He's Eldridge Gary. I mean, imagine not liking a famous phenomenon named for you. Well, I guess Lou Gehrig. But Jerry was VP, Gary was vice president of the USA. Did you know that? And such as the, I guess, powerlessness of the vice president, especially back then, and such as the power of the gerrymander, we remember him for something besides holding the second highest office in the land. In more modern gerrymandering news, the Democrats took one on the chin when their New York map was thrown out really was a clear, blatant, indefensible gerrymander, and now it makes what was a gerrymander stalemate, or what Nate Cohn of the New York Times described as the total results of all gerrymandering from all states slightly favoring Democrats, now it makes that moot. It's a Republican world. We're just trying to vote around it. And all of this is good for Democrats, I say. What? They're going to lose the midterms, and now they have even more excuses, like the districts were gerrymandered against them. And the alternative would have been still losing the midterms, but having a net advantage in gerrymandering, which they just couldn't take advantage of. That would have been very dispiriting. And so now they're relieved of the cognitive dissonance of opposing gerrymandering in principle, but engaging in it in practice. Very clean. Also, the judges in New York that struck it down, they were all Democratic appointees, which is ideologically reassuring. Democratic appointed judges follow rules. They're legitimate. It's a great talking point. Probably makes Democrats feel very good about themselves. And it should, especially when you look at other cases. Let's look at the mask mandate case. Leslie Manukian, an Ohio-based anti-COVID regulation advocate, went and found two people living in Tampa, Anna Carolina Daza and Sarah Pope. Pope and Daza went before Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, by the way, girl power, and in this closed conservative loop, the mask mandate was overturned. Democratic judges don't do that. Democratic judges don't just simply do Democrats' bidding. Very heartening to Democrats. And Dems will have to hold on to that because the midterms, by all indications, are going to be wrenching. So it'll be nice to cling to some of the high ground just as you lose ground in the House and maybe the Senate. Unfortunately, the high ground doesn't get you much if you don't eventually overcome those redrawn maps advantaging Republicans, which, of course, will stand for another four federal elections after this one. On the show today, the gist difference. You listen, but you ever wonder... What's it get me? I will tell you. I will use Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene to demonstrate efficacy. 
That's the gist difference. But first, as I mentioned, both parties are redrawing maps and sometimes making those redrawings stick. Personally, I think it ain't great, but it's been around for a while, gerrymandering has. Is this fixture of U.S. politics suddenly a crisis? Well, Dave Daly, my guest, says, well, yeah, kind of is. Not surprising, he once wrote a book called Rat Fucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. But it counts here on The Gist, as we are joined next by Dave Daly. You had your copy of the March 26th, 1812 edition of the Boston Gazette. You would see right there on the headline a cartoon of a congressional district labeled the gerrymander, probably the gerrymander as it was named after Eldridge Gerry, the gerrymander, a new species of monster. Wasn't new. It actually maybe goes back to Patrick Henry or at least his attempts early on in the founding of the Republic. So gerrymandering has always been with us, and it, of course, is an aspect of our system, let us just say, not optimized for actual representation. On the other hand, I wonder if gerrymandering is more in the category of unjust quirk or human rights violation. There are a number of new gerrymandering cases and states going through all of this, and I'm here to speak with maybe America's greatest expert in gerrymandering, David Daly. He is the author of Unrigged, How Americans Battled Back to Save Democracy, and Rat Fucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. Dave, welcome to The Gist. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's go to a couple of the states, but Ohio seems to be going through a lot of uh, what the technical term is, Michigas. What's up there? It's absolutely lawless behavior. Listen, you go back to 2015 and 2018, Ohio voters went and they made changes to their state constitution in order to try to fix partisan gerrymandering and to get the politicians a little bit further out of the process. Ohio has been rigged for decades to the extent that Republicans who usually win 52, 53% of the presidential vote in Ohio, have got super majorities in the state legislature, and they take 12 of 16 of the congressional seats. That's 75%, and none of them have been competitive in ages. And so voters tried to fix this and put some guardrails on the process. Politicians immediately this time, Republican governor, Republican state auditor, Republican secretary of state, the the legislative officials have effectively just run roughshod over what 70% of the people wanted to, to do there. You've had a Supreme Court in Ohio that uh, four times now has gone to these legislators and said, what you're doing is unconstitutional. You've got to come back and fix it. And they keep coming back with something just as bad. It is really an example of how politicians will cling to this process to draw lines because it's the power to pick winners and losers for the next decade. And the courts have 
tried to intercede, but from what I understand is everything just becomes a Russian nesting doll version of the original sin of the partisanship of the process. So the voters could want a fair process. They authorize a commission, but guess what? If the commission is created by the legislature, it just becomes an arm of the legislature. Then it goes to the courts and guess what? The composition of the justices of the courts exactly becomes a reflection of the partisanship of the legislature. And we just get a self-reinforcing cycle. The governor's son is on the state Supreme Court ruling on the gerrymanders that his father has helped enact to keep his party in power. So yes, I mean, it is, it is a nesting doll upon, upon nesting doll. Uh, what I think is so fascinating about what's happening in Ohio is that voters attempted to put an end to this. And what we've seen there and in a lot of other states is that just because you think you've passed a reform that has made a process better, there is always going to be an attempt made to get around it. Uh, you know, it's a combination of a Russian nesting doll and a game of whack-a-mole. You fix the problem in one place and, you know, suddenly you've got a problem on the state's Supreme Court. Or if you're lucky enough, as you are right now in Ohio, to have a courageous Republican chief justice who has sided with the three Democrats there and tried to force an actual constitutional process in the state, uh, then the Republicans simply go to the federal courts. And the federal courts have said, well, listen, guys, you've just got to finalize a map. And if you can't do this by the end of May, we're just going to pick one of these other ones and use that. So all of a sudden, the Republicans have zero incentive to actually pass a map. The incentive there is simply to run out the clock and get the map that they wanted all along. Mm -hmm. So... Do you think ethically speaking, and the second question will be tactically speaking, Democrats should gerrymander? Gerrymandering is not something that either side should be doing. Now, I understand that if one side is going to do it for the other side not to is unilateral disarmament, I suppose. Uh, so certainly if you're looking at this as sort of a democratic partisan, I understand the impulse. But here's the thing. Democrats can't win by gerrymandering. They don't control enough state legislatures to like actually make this be a useful tactic. Therefore, what Democrats needed to do this, this cycle when they had complete control in Washington was pass actual voting legislation that created national standards on partisan gerrymandering. This is what they had to do, and they failed to do it. And we're going to live with the consequences of that for, you know, at least another decade with these maps. Well, they failed to do it because of another undemocratic aspect of our system, which is, you know, you can't get that through reconciliation. You needed 60 votes for that. And so... Democrats controlled the process, but not to the extent where they could get those laws passed. Well, they needed to change the filibuster rules, and they had uh, they 48 to votes yeah. to, to get there, and they uh, couldn't pull in uh, Senator Manchin or uh, the eccentric Senator Cinema from Arizona. Is part of that that senators, I mean, they might be motivated to change the filibuster for a lot of things, but not for gerrymandering. They can't be gerrymandered. You know, they also can't pass anything they want to pass. <laughs> um, yeah, right. You know, so. But if that, but my point is, if there's one thing that pushes a Joe Manchin or a cinema over the edge, it's not going to be this issue. 
you know, I think that this issue is at the core of so much of the minority rule problem that we have in this country that is bad and only getting worse. And so this to me seems like the kind of core central issue that leaders ought to look at, especially when you consider that huge majorities of Americans hate this. Um, yeah. You know, 70, 75 percent of Americans would like to see reform of partisan gerrymandering. The other 25 percent don't know what the hell it is. So everybody, you know, effectively, when they find out about politicians drawing their own lines, choosing their own voters, declaring themselves, uh, you know, a representative for life, they don't like it. Right. But they don't like it or they object to it, not to the extent that that surpasses uh, other issues. I mean, if they objected it to it so much, it wouldn't work because voters would simply vote against candidates who uh, represent the fact that, let's say, Pennsylvania is uh, 12 out of the 16 seats are Republicans. Republicans couldn't get a vote if they stood for the hated issue of gerrymandering. It's just that, you know, to Americans, I think most people process problems aren't as high on their list as things like pocketbook problems and other, and we're finding out now, culture war problems. No, I think that's right. Um, but I also think that until Democrats especially are able to find a way to message to Americans that until we fix the core representation problem, you're not going to get action on any of the issues that people want to get action on, whether that's reproductive rights, whether it is climate, whether it's immigration. Mm -hmm. It almost doesn't matter what the issue is um, until there is a way for majorities of voters to come together at, at the ballot box and and change their government. This is where we are, and it's only going to get worse in state legislatures around the country. I mean, I think so much of what we're seeing coming out of legislatures around the country right now uh, can be tied back almost directly to, to partisan gerrymandering. So I'm going to answer the question that I asked you, is it ethically wrong and tactically wrong? I do think that it is tactically right. And therefore, I think maybe that would argue that it's ethically right if you want to solve the problem. And my case would be, if Democrats do this, you're right, they can't, they can't do it and they can't neutralize the Republican control of so many state houses. But if they do it pretty effectively and at least establish a stalemate, then there's a better chance to have compromise since one party won't commit to the tactic as advantageous to them. It's sort of like money in politics. I think you could maybe make a case for bilateral disarmament if it turns out that great, we both, you know, both sides get to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in the presidential race and it's all a wash and it was just a big waste of time. So maybe Democrats have to gerrymander the hell out of states in the short term just to make the argument that you're not getting an advantage out of this, Republicans. Maybe. But I think the reality of that is what we're seeing in the New York courts right now, which is that that gerrymander has failed. So if blue states are going to have judges that toss their partisan gerrymanders, and that's not going to be the case in Texas or Florida or Georgia or Alabama, uh, perhaps not even in Ohio, perhaps not even in North Carolina after this fall state Supreme Court elections, what you're going to have um, would be both sides trying to use the current rules to gerrymander the hell out of the states that they have control, but the Republican gerrymanders surviving and the Democratic ones not surviving 
judicial review. So I don't know where that leaves them. It also just leaves voters in a, in a terrible place. It's awful if you're a Democrat in Kansas or a Republican in New York and you ought to have a shot at representation and you simply won't. And whenever you have these districts that are completely engineered for one side or another, the election that matters is the party primary and you just get everybody running off to uh, uh, crazy extremes and then, and, then, and then nothing works. You mentioned Kansas. What's going on there? Uh, Kansas is a fascinating state. Uh, it is. You, you wouldn't think it were just by, by looking at its square corners. But it's, yeah, it really right. Is. Yeah. Um, you know, Kansas, you had a Democrat actually win a congressional seat in Kansas back in 2018. Uh, there's that uh, district with, uh, you know, Lawrence and sort of a part of Kansas City. Uh, and a Democrat won in 18 and held the seat in 2020. And Kansas lawmakers uh, vowed uh, that if they won veto-proof control of the state legislature in 2020, that they would get rid of that district over the veto of a Democratic governor, because in indeed Kansas has a Democratic governor, a very popular one. Mm -hmm. And they did, in fact, draw a, a wildly uh, um, aggressive partisan gerrymander that would have eliminated that uh, seat, but a court in Kansas uh, has overturned it. So that is going to go next to Kansas' state Supreme Court, and we will see how it stands up there. Yeah. You know, you wrote a book called Unrigged, How America's Battle Back to Save Democracy. But the implication you say this so often is it's rigged. Your vote is rigged. Your other book's subtitle is Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. As I look at it, it like I said before, um, Gerrymandering is a problem. It's suboptimal. It has all these add-on effects of decreasing democracy and making primaries more important than they should be. But in terms of despairing or telling people that your vote doesn't count, I think people's votes count. I think that in general, there are some congressional districts where uh, they're going to be heavily blue or heavily red anyway. And there are some congressional districts that were naturally going to be competitive. But my point is, is there a danger in exaggerating the problem that you just turn people off from politics and you convince people, if the system is rigged, to be more dispirited than would facilitate um, a solution? I think we really need to be talking about how serious a problem this is. I mean, in, in 2012, you had Barack Obama re-elected president. The Democrats gained seats in the U.S. Senate. Uh, but Republicans held on to the U.S. House, 234-201. Uh, and that was despite winning 1.4 million fewer votes nationwide. Uh, Obama's second term, the term that Americans gave him, effectively ended the night of his re-election because of what happened in that House and because of the kinds of members that went into that house, folks like Mark Meadows, who were purely the uh, product um, of extreme redistricting. Um, you have a state like Wisconsin, which is, you know, a classic 50-50 state in 2018, uh, you know, goes for, um, you know, Tammy Baldwin for the U.S. Senate, uh, defeats Scott Walker for governor, uh, a Democratic candidates in every single statewide office. And yet, even though Democrats win 203,000 more votes for the state assembly, Republicans hold on to 63 of 99 seats. Uh, so I think what we're looking at here is a very serious problem in, in, in states that is 
only getting worse. You open this episode by talking about Elbridge Gerry. The folks who are drawing these maps today are using much better technology than Elbridge Gerry had and Patrick Henry had. But those maps evolved. They lost their power over the course of a decade. The maps that we're seeing right now have not seen their power decrease. And so I think that gerrymandering has moved from something that was a quirk of the system to the victor goes the spoils to the ability to pick winners and losers that last a decade and that in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin can last for a generation. David Daly is, well, I'll read the quote that Eric Holder said about him. David Daly is our Paul Revere of partisan gerrymandering. He's the author of Rat Fucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. Thanks so much, Dave. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. And now, the spiel. I'm here to tell you of the gist difference. To set the table in my talk of the gist difference, here's today's news on New York freshman representative Madison Cawthorn. Not the second illegal gun charge in the airport, not the third traffic violation in the past three months resulting in a revoked license, not calling Vladimir Zelensky a thug. Let's quote from Fox News. Footage showing Representative Madison Cawthorn, Republican North Carolina, joking about sex with his male aide in a car surfaced Thursday. Quote, I feel the passion and desire and would like to see a naked body beneath my hands. Cawthorn says blankly, the duo start laughing as Stephen Smith agrees. The video then shows Smith reaching over into Cawthorn's crotch before ending abruptly. Adding to that, Tom Tillis, a Republican senator from Cawthorn State of North Carolina, is asking for a corruption probe into insider trading, and other Republicans in the Congress are raising questions about Cawthorn paying for Stephen Smith's living expenses. That part actually seems a little like an anti-gay smear, but it does represent pretty much the full continuum of objections designed to repel any North Carolina voter wherever they are in the political spectrum. It's all being directed by Republicans. Okay, so what's the gist difference? Well, whereas I find Representative Bobert, Green, Gosar, Gates, odious, and I tell you so, with Cawthorn, I went further. Very early in Cawthorn's arrival in the public eye, I said this to you. This guy is not long for this realm. Politics. This is the gist From 2021, January 13th, 2021. I'm going to predict right here, right now, that Madison Cawthorn won't have a bright political future as an elected official. I don't think so. I think he's going to self-immolate. And this was me from just a couple of weeks ago. He is not long for elected politics. He lacks the skills. He lacks even the demagoguery skills. His demagoguery is just bad. Madison Cawthorn is a D-minus demagogue. Well, 
I don't know what's going to happen. You could survive this, but I do think I called it early and I let you know why I thought what I thought. And here's the real difference. I didn't paint with so broad a brush as to predict doom for any other member of the caustic clown car caucus. In fact, more just difference. When I covered the trial of Marjorie Taylor Greene last week, I pointed out that she was made to look foolish on the stand, that she denied her obviously incendiary words towards Nancy Pelosi, that she was embarrassed when they played her own words back to her. But I also took much care to tell you, my audience, where the trial was going, which is nowhere. Just listeners will not be disappointed when inevitably Marjorie Taylor Greene is allowed to run for office again, and you should not be surprised and say, how dare this justice be allowed when she wins re-election? Now compare that to, say, MSNBC, whose coverage forefronted the horror of Greene to the exclusion of real contextualization of the possibility of her removal. It's a big deal, historically, politically, and legally. There are all sorts of ramifications that can come out from all of this, as well as from Green's testimony. It is a big deal that we have this totally unfit person in office. This challenge to her candidacy, however, under the 14th Amendment is not a big deal because it is highly, highly unlikely to work. Every other challenge of this sort, including, yes, to Madison Cawthorn, has been thrown out, and the plain reading of the law of the Constitution does not indicate that what Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing, while incautious and proper and temperate, violate the 14th Amendment. To portray it otherwise has the effect of creating anger and distrust in the system, when the system never actually really held out the possibility that this loathed Congresswoman could be barred from serving. All three segments that I saw in this on MSNBC, and maybe there were others, but the ones I saw failed to contextualize this property. They just hit the anger, the anger that you should feel, and didn't say anything like, of course, you should know it's going nowhere. Two of the segments I saw on CNN did include those points, but the Jim Acosta one did not. Of the MSNBC segments, Ali Hassan's was the most likely to anger viewers and convince them that the system is rigged and unfair. Here's Hassan playing a clip of green that was aired during the hearing and here right after the clip you'll see him drawing the most extreme conclusion and this is an important time in our history we can't allow this just to just to be gone you know just to let it go you can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like joe biden wants and allow him to become our president because he did not win this election it's being stolen and the evidence is there that is a call for violence. There's no other way to describe that other than incitement. It isn't. It wasn't even clear during the hearing that Green said those words after taking the oath of office, which is the only way it would violate the 14th Amendment. That might seem like a lawyerly point, but this was a hearing for lawyers. That Ali Hassan segment ended with him interviewing the lawyer who brought the case. And none of those lawyers ever entered into evidence what the date of that video was. The video is useless as evidence. Viewers should have known that. And as far as saying there won't be peace, there will be a mass march, which is what Marjorie Taylor Greene was saying. All right. We know what happened with that mass march, chaos, insurrection. But I will ask you to listen to this tape from January 6th, 2001. First speaker is Corrine Brown, member of the Congressional Black Caucus for 24 years, in fact. No justice, no peace. We are moving on many fronts. Uh, there is a meeting uh, today uh, in Florida, in Orlando, 
uh, where we're planning a march for January the 20th in Tallahassee. We will also have a march here. Uh, we will also we'll, we'll be going into court. And then at the same press conference was Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson, then and now a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. She's still in office. She's the oldest member of the House of Representatives today. And back then, she had just come off the House floor criticizing the results of the election. There will simply be no peace until these problems can be corrected. Now, I don't for a second think that those two Congress members were advocating violence. You could draw plenty of other inferences from their words. I also got to say, you wouldn't have a hard time convincing me that Marjorie Taylor Greene at least didn't mind the insurrection. However, playing that undated clip does not and should not lead to the inevitable conclusion that Greene was calling for violence. There is another way to describe that sentiment. I just did. But if a person, a viewer, were told and believed that there is no other way to think of a clip as other than a call for insurrection, then I think that person when the insurrectionist is not held to account, is going to become depressed, angry, disillusioned. And I guess the only way to solve those wounds, wounds of the MSNBC creation to some extent, is to just offer viewers mainlining more righteousness, telling them your emotions are valid because there can be no other interpretation. And that's the gist difference. I'm not trying to addict you to the IV drip of resentment. I'm not recognizing a market condition that's out there or seeing a potential exploitable audience who needs their anger reinforced or attended to. I actually don't think I'm less angry than Jim Acosta or Ali Hassan at the behavior of the worst of the worst of the Freedom Caucus. I just don't think that their collective noxious presence should be wafted away by warping or misreading the law. And it's my job and it's the gist difference to present you with a full set of facts for you to be able to come to these conclusions too. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. He makes a difference. Joel Patterson, Gist senior producer, real difference maker out there. Michelle Pesco is the fifth vice president of the United States, ninth governor of Massachusetts, and member of the Continental Congress. And all we remember her for is that weird shape called the Michelle Mander. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, dapperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. Thank you.